The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. None of the commentary in this podcast should be considered financial advice or legal advice. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual guests and should not be considered actionable, may be incorrect, and are subject to large amounts of uncertainty. Wired takes no responsibility for listeners taking action based on the contents of this podcast. Always do your own research. The presenters and guests of this podcast may have long or short positions in the assets discussed at the time of recording or at the time of podcast release, which may bias their view. Hey everyone, welcome to Wired Talks, the Wired podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I'm joined by my co-host today, uh, Louis Aboud, GP of Wirecap. Louis, welcome. Pleasure as always. Excited to be here. Yeah, I can't begin to express how excited I am for this episode. I honestly had trouble sleeping last night just just thinking about being in a room with uh, uh, such heavyweights as, as we are today. So we we do have James Prestwich from Suma. James is a returning guest. We've had you on the show before. James, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. And we also have Matt Luongo from uh, Keep Network. First time on the show for Matt. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So we're here to discuss a new collaborative effort uh, called Crosschain Group. And the first project that Crosschain Group has tackled is a way to bring Bitcoin, uh, the liquidity of Bitcoin and all things Bitcoin onto Ethereum called TBTC. Uh, I won't butcher uh, <laughs> the specifics of the definition. I'll let you guys get into it in a second. But before we do that, why don't we spend a little bit of time, actually uh, not too much time because I, I really want to save some time for the meat of the discussion, but a little bit of time on your introductions and your background Really, the long and short of it is is James and Matt are, are like OGs in the space. You guys have been in crypto for several years. You can you can tell as soon as you look into your eyes, you have this hollow uh, look about you. <laughs> but you, you're very well positioned to solve particular problems in the space, uh, especially in the cross-chain universe. But uh, let's go over your respective histories in crypto and, and how that kind of culminated to going down the cross-chain rabbit hole. James, uh, we know a little bit about your prior history before crypto already having been on the show, but let's let's talk about the work that led to uh, Cross-Chain Group. Right. So, my uh, crowning achievement in crypto, I guess, is being a two-time guest on the Wire Talks podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that aside, for the past about 18 months, uh, me and a couple friends have been working on a company called Suma. Suma works on cross-chain solutions. We build financial instruments, interoperability technology, and other things. Our clients right now include the Zcash company, now renamed the ECC, and a few other like prominent layer one chains. Yeah. And before Suma, you were at Storage, you were the CEO of Storage, and then you spent some time with Chia, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so I co-founded Storage back in 2014. They're still going strong. They're about 40, 50 people now based in Atlanta. All right. And um, I spent like two months at Chia and uh, they gave me an advisory. So most of them, what I do with Chia is talk to Bram about cross-chain solutions and wallet and chain design. Okay. And then we'll, we'll go over the specifics of your work at Suma in a second. But before that, Matt, can you kick it off with your background specifically in crypto and how sure. that led to... Yeah. So... um my background is uh, like heavily computer science, but I got fascinated with Bitcoin in 2013 and uh, started a Bitcoin 1.0, like kind of classic payments company called Fold. It's actually around and kicking today. They're getting ready to spin out and kind of like 
it out of the wings. And since then, we've started a project called Keep, kind of scratching our own privacy itch that we found building things at Fold. Yeah, and, and at Keep, you're focusing on really solving some very, very core issues within crypto, right? Um, That's right. Yeah. So the big idea, it's like sort of hard to distill down because it's infrastructure, right? It's infrastructure for the crypto space. But the big idea is we got into uh, smart contracts and trying to decentralize some of our own business at Fold. And we quickly realized that privacy story, you know, for Ethereum at the time, but really for most expressive chains is very poor. And so we started applying multi-party computation of those problems, mostly around data marketplaces. But it turns out that that tech is super applicable to cross-chain interoperability. Yeah. Secure multi-party computation is going to be a very big part of this uh, conversation. Can you give the audience a quick 30-second description? Of yeah. That? Yeah. So first, a caveat, right? Like, People love to trot out terms like multi-party computation as kind of like a privacy magic wand, and they're not. So I just want anyone hearing this to make sure to have their bullshit detector kind of tuned. But um, yeah, the, the idea behind MPC is that, you know, the two of us maybe together want to compute a function. So maybe it's we want to know who has the highest salary, right? Now, I'm not going to, you know, pull out my pay stub and you're not. I mean, maybe if we were drinking... But, um, you know, it's a little, it's sensitive, right? Uh, but maybe it's useful to know, like, who's getting paid more. Uh, I understand MPC is way easier when you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, math usually, just in general. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so so what MPC lets you do is it, like, it lets you take multiple parties that are potentially adversaries, and they can kind of solve a problem together without leaking private information to each other. So it's a little bit different. Like, people love to be like, well, what about this versus snarks? Because, you know... There's not really a high level of education around this stuff. But what it's really about is autonomous privacy. So how can I, like MPC is a tool to replace institutions. How can I replace an auction house, a clearing house, the tax man versus things like snarks, which are really about just personal information, not between multiple participants. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the multi-party computation work that you've done is around private key uh, yeah. generation management. Yeah, yeah. So very quickly in MPC, you realize that small data is better, right? And so what we really need in the space is we don't need a great... I mean, you know, there are people who are working on things like machine learning between multiple participants and like very like big data. But for the most part, like there's not there, there's not a use case for that in cryptocurrency. We deal with small data and all agreeing what it is. So like from the tech side, the really obvious use case for this is key material. How can I encrypt and decrypt file ostensibly like from a smart contract, right? That's kind of like what you're trying to solve for a developer. In the same way, how can I sign a Bitcoin transaction from Ethereum? Yeah. Uh, and James, let's circle back to you and the seminal work that you've done at Suma that led to cross-chain group. I know you've done all sorts of work around cross-chain atomic swaps, or as like as you like to call them, cross-chain atomic options, um, <laughs> and stateless SPV. I'm, I know we've recorded a whole podcast about that before, but it's something that still kind of is over my head at sometimes. Can you give the audience just a brief overview? I think the most relevant thing from your past work to this conversation is the stateless SPV work. So if you can give the audience an overview of, of that specific work. Definitely. So when it comes to like cross-chain communication, there's really four main methods of doing this, right? There's stateless SPV, which I'll get back to and talk about in a second. There's relays. So like Ethereum in the early days had BTC relay. It takes Bitcoin headers and puts them into a smart contract. 
um, there's merged consensus. So like Cosmos or Polkadot, where different chains are referencing each other. ETH2 is going to be merged consensus between a bunch of shards. And there's atomic swaps, which is not actually communication. It's where the people involved set up something that looks like communication. Ethereum does still have BTC relay because, you know, contracts stick around in the history at least forever. It's just been halted for two years. Why? No one used it and it was extremely expensive to maintain. You know, you brought up stateless SPV. Um, this is something that we came up with at Suma that hasn't been done before. Uh, one of the advantages is that it's extremely cheap per user compared to maintaining an entire relay. The relay, you have to update every header uh, forever. Otherwise, you stop being able to use the relay. With stateless SPV, we can take a look at just, you know, six or 10 headers from Bitcoin, and we can get a confidence rating for those headers specifically. So that way you can, without looking at the whole chain and paying the cost of maintaining the whole chain, make statements about Bitcoin's history and what has and hasn't happened in Bitcoin. And putting this in like smart contract terms, this means solidity contracts that can read Bitcoin transactions, read Bitcoin history, figure out if I paid Louis, figure out what happened to those coins when he spent them. And this means we can make complex systems that inspect Bitcoin and from Ethereum and make Ether-based decisions using that information. So it feels like you're sort of creating a bit of design space here. And, you know, as one of the kind of leading experts in like pushing the limits of what Bitcoin script can do, what, what are the sort of putting TBTC to one side? What are the sort of uh, more practical applications that you think uh, sort of viable today that uh, might solve a problem either, you know, as it exists today or, uh, you know, a problem that you see building that might grow into a more significant issue in the future as more chains come online? You know, as uh, Thomas alluded to earlier, we started off working on atomic call options, mm. right? And the SPV work kind of fell out of that. Uh, it's something we discovered along the way. So a lot of the use cases we think about are financial contracts between chains. How can you and I have a contract between us that runs on two chains that we can each enforce the rules of? This was what really like attracted us to the atomic swap in the first place is it's something that we can set up between the two of us that we can self-enforce a financial contract. And so a lot of the use cases we think about for SPV, for atomic swaps are in that neighborhood. Um, and I think TBTC is a good kind of manifestation of this is it's largely a two-party contract that we socketed into a, a system in order to enable uh, fungibility of the token across all of these you know, two-party contracts. Yeah. Before we dive into the specifics of the implementation, uh, let's talk a little bit about the origin story. How'd you guys initially collaborate and, you know, pick each other's brain on this issue? <laughs> huh. That's a good question. We're both that is like, a good question. Yeah, so it started with a phone call. Uh, I think I was introduced to James. It was, I mean, it was a killer intro, but I don't know if anyone involved understood that we were going to work this closely together. I think it was more like, hey, you guys have both been around. And while actually uh, we both mostly grew up in Atlanta, mm -hmm. but we didn't meet until California. And very quickly we clicked because I think James cannot suffer foolishness in this space. <laughs> and uh, and, and <laughs> so that's something we have in common. 
And, you know, I think, you know, now it's 2019 and we can all look back at 2017 and kind of be quite proud of ourselves and look at what all those fools did, uh, pretending that we weren't them in 2017, right? <laughs> so I think, uh, I think it was just uh, very quickly two clear-eyed people in the space who have similar interests, technical backgrounds, and just got excited about working together. Yeah, I, I think that's really it is uh, we both kind of treated this as a normal, hey, who are you phone call and just kind of had a really like quick connection on, you know, our opinions about the space, where things were going, what the macro trends were. And so we've been working together pretty closely for uh, two years now. Wow. Okay. I didn't know it was a two-year relationship. It's been pretty under wraps. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally some likes on Twitter is what you see publicly. We're, yeah. we're about to change that. But <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, cool. So uh, each of you guys are obviously bringing some domain expertise to uh, the table. Uh, of course, Matt's bringing a lot of this stuff from the multi-party computation world and you're bringing your work from stateless SPV, James. Before we get into the implementation, I think it's always helpful for the audience to think about the past work that's been done. And I think the closest thing to TBTC right now, and you're probably ashamed to even be affiliated <laughs> with this, uh, is probably wrapped Bitcoin, right? Sure. Uh, wrapped Bitcoin, of course, is is a way to get ERC-20 Bitcoin on Ethereum by essentially just locking up Bitcoin with a designated custodian or a party of custodians, right? I think it was originally led by Bitco and just oversimplifying TBTC right now. But what you're essentially trying to do is decentralize that counterparty experience, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I mean... I'm sorry, I'm just going to go for it. Uh, yeah. you know, I'm not ashamed to, to talk about WBTC because you got to get something to market and, you know, mm -hmm. respect that, you know, they made some pragmatic trade-offs. But I didn't get into the space to build these convoluted KYC systems or to take centralized business models and slap a token on it. And so I think, you know, when, when I saw WBTC, both James and I have been building the tech to sort of do this the right way. And I think we'd always assumed some team is going to come along and do it. And uh, WBTC was just like, you should just be that team. Like, clearly the market <laughs> needs it. So uh, anyway, zooming back a little bit for folks who might not be familiar, and uh, please tell me if I take too many liberties with explaining how WBTC works, guys. But the basic idea is, um, you know, you want price exposure, primarily price exposure, on Ethereum to Bitcoin. And so the idea behind WBTC is, you know, you can take centralized custodians, Maybe they use a multi-sig, but uh, basically they're centralized custodians who accept Bitcoin and who then have the right to mint tokens on Ethereum. And destroy tokens. And burn, right. And burn tokens on Ethereum. Super pragmatic, but at the end of the day, it works very much like a fiat-backed stablecoin, right? Similar to USDC. And, and if you look at this stuff, like clearly there's a market need for that right now. But why when you can do something better? Uh, and so I think what, what James and I immediately knew is that those trade-offs aren't necessary to build a product that gives you Bitcoin on Ethereum. They're, they're sort of a, a shortcut. Well, and uh, I think one of the things we realized very early on is that when doing this, you can't build WBTC for the Ethereum market, which is kind of where wrapped Bitcoin ended up. It's targeted at Ethereum users. You need to build the system targeted at Bitcoin users, mm. and Bitcoin users don't like shortcuts. And so what are the sort of technical or economic guarantees that you would think will satisfy a Bitcoin user? Well, you know, there are a couple I think that are really upfront, right? So one is Bitcoin users 
hate printing money. <laughs> right. So, um, so like, you know, very quickly you're like, well, what about synthetics? And it's like, um, you know, synthetics are interesting and they have a, a place in the market. Like, okay. But if you're a Bitcoiner, like don't print more Bitcoin. That's kind of like the number one principle for Bitcoin is sound money. So our first goal, a lot of these projects, uh, you know, die is a good example are price pegs. But what we've built here is what we're calling a supply peg. And it's, you will only ever have one TBTC for one Bitcoin. And then the flip side, which is uh, you can always redeem any token on the Ethereum side for Bitcoin, no KYC, no middlemen. So I think that's probably number one is not being able to print more money. Number two is censorship resistance. So there shouldn't be any sort of custodian or, or you know, really you want to get to the point where incredibly politically unpopular people can still mm -hmm. use your system without fear of uh, censorship or seizure. And, you know, if you were to imagine something with WBTC today, where maybe the Iranian government got involved and dusted those wallets, it's yeah. not, not a pretty picture. Doesn't pass the Kim Jong-un test. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're effectively trying to uh, decentralize the custodianship back end, what are these attack vectors that are presented that you need to solve just out the gate? Theft? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely the biggest incentive is theft, right? Yeah, there's theft, there's griefing, there's all sorts of, um, even though this is a supply peg and not a price peg, the same um, arguments people love to make about the Bank of England peg and breaking that peg are still mm. there, yeah. where people will try to um, just try to strain the edges of the system. And, uh, and so really, our goal is how can we build something that is resilient to many, many sigmas? And uh, how can we get to like, what is Bitcoin minus one? What is just below Bitcoin, but works on other chains? And you have several attack vectors, and then you have you kind of go through them one by one sure. with different uh, solutions, right? So at a high level, can you sort of overview the the basic functionality of TBTC, how it's minted, how it's redeemed, and how the information passes between the two chains? Sure. What I'll, I'll cover the the basics, and then I'll let James embellish because there's some cool future work we've talked about here as well. But the user experience that we want, right? is you go to some sort of dApp, maybe you've loaded it in your browser via a hosted service like ours, or maybe maybe it's like via something like IPFS. But you go to a dApp and uh, you say, I want to uh, deposit one Bitcoin. And then, you know, you get one TBTC on the other side. Let's pretend that fees don't exist and everyone likes to work for free for a minute. Mm. And so the way that, that that minting process works is you first hit the Ethereum chain. So you can use something like, actually, we're, we'll be uh, announcing and demoing a dApp in a couple days. But you can use something like MetaMask. And what you do is you open a deposit and you basically let the smart contracts know, hey, I'd like to deposit one Bitcoin. And then what happens off-chain is a bunch of signing candidates um, submit tickets to take on that work. So I'm going to use some sort of like temporary numbers here. There's an asterisk every time I say a number around system time, there's an asterisk because we're always modeling it until before launch to make sure they're solid. But uh, so let's say you have 10 of these folks come together and they say, we're going to come together and we are going to mutually create a Bitcoin public and private key pair. And we will give you the PKH, which is the Bitcoin address. So that's returned from Ethereum. And then uh, what you do in this app is it's, I mean, it's just like any old Bitcoin payment experience. So I'm not going to say you can use any wallet. There are some distinctions right now. I think Electrum and Green Wallet are both working well. But uh, you deposit one Bitcoin. 
And then the next part is where it gets cool because there's a huge leap of faith you just took. That's what is it? Uh, $10,000 right now. Yep. So, so you just slap your $10,000 in the browser. No, you, uh, <laughs> you know, you deposit, uh, you deposit $10,000 and then the DAP actually watches the Bitcoin chain and it waits for one confirmation. And this is where like James and kind of stateless SPV come in. So you deposit your Bitcoin, you just shove 10,000 into your web browser, right? Um, is that what we're going with right now? <laughs> no, is, that the, is that the... The browser doesn't actually have custody of funds, but it's what the user experience looks like. Right. Yeah. Is that the story we want to tell? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the money doesn't actually go to your web browser. What happened behind the scenes is these signers came together, they submitted tickets for this work, they made an, a group that are in control of that Bitcoin address. And so you're sending funds to this group of signers. And when you've done that, you go and submit a proof to the Ethereum chain that you did it. And so the Ethereum chain can check that you deposited Bitcoin via SPV proofs. Um, and it will you know, validate that you did this, that the Bitcoin went where it was supposed to, that these signers exist. And then it will issue you a new TBTC. Yep. So the, the tiny bit of complexity, and, and we're just going to smooth all this out. You know, what's actually happening on Ethereum is, okay, yes, I have one Bitcoin that's been deposited into this group. And yes, I've minted one TBTC. But how do you convince these people to do this work and mm -hmm. make sure that they don't, for example, walk with the money? Yeah. And so the steps that we kind of skip there are one, we ask all of these signers to put down more collateral than is necessary to guarantee that they won't misbehave. So, for example, they could put down, uh, let's say, let's say Bitcoin is $10,000, they could put down $15,000 worth of Ethereum for the right to partially custody that Bitcoin. And then the idea is we can use the same proof trick. And if those guys ever um, move the coin or sign anything on or off chain that wasn't authorized, you take their money. The goal here is to make a supply peg, right? right. Mm. Which means that for every TBTC that exists, there is one Bitcoin in reserve. Okay. So if the signers take that Bitcoin and walk away, now we have an imbalance and we need to fix it. And how we fix it is we take the signers collateral and we use it to buy one TBTC from the market and destroy it. And so the asset that will be bonded by the signers uh, in this implementation will be ETH itself, right? It's not... That's an option. That's yeah. an option. So like there are certainly other options. We're going to go deep fast. <laughs> so I'm not, I won't go too long. Yeah. Um, uh, let, let's finish up like the redemption flow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, no, we'll get through. I guess I'm, I'm just going to say shortly, it doesn't have to be ETH. Yeah. Um, signers might not want to be long Ethereum to participate in the system. So there mm -hmm. are other options. Yeah. But yeah, so that's deposits. So for deposits, you know, now the signer has this Bitcoin. There's one TBTC outstanding. Eventually, someone's going to want to get Bitcoin out, right? <laughs> right? Yep. Probably. Yep, probably. So what we have to do is we have to have these signers standing by waiting for that request. And their job for the next, uh, let's say, six months, I think that's what the yeah. current parameter is. Looking like that'll stick around. Six yeah. months is to stay online, wait for a redemption request, and provide that Bitcoin to anyone who can put in one TBTC. So me as a TBTC holder who wants Bitcoin back on the Bitcoin chain, I can go to any signing group, give the contract the TBTC, which gets destroyed, and the signing group is responsible for sending me that Bitcoin as soon as possible. 
And if they don't, they'll get slashed. Well, their bonds will get seized, and I will get paid out at least one TBTC. The highest level, it's basically distributed custody with insurance. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's exactly what it is. So yeah. if you think of each of these new signing groups that's created as just another custodian, mm-hmm. right? So what's the benefit over these guys over another custodian? Well, they're cross-jurisdiction, they're randomly chosen, but also you don't have to worry about the legal system if there's theft or a hack. Mm-hmm. You already have on-chain collateral that you can just walk away with. Yeah. So I think there's like three key parts of the system. There's a, a deposit flow that you just described. You, there's a redemption flow that you described, and then we'll get into the bonding and slash conditions sure. and things like that. So uh, just some follow-up questions on the deposit flow. When the deposit is received and acknowledged by the signing group, well, first of all, how is that signing group selected in a manner where you know that they're geographically you know, distributed sure. and things like that? Yeah. So like you're never going to know. So this is not a, like a proof of location project, but you can get pretty confident, right? So this is where a lot of the work that Keep has done kind of comes to the table. The first thing that we built early on for our MPC platform was a random beacon. Um, and yes, this is similar to ETH2's random beacon. The difference is it works on proof of work today. It's not a new, a new chain and it's not a consensus mechanism. But what you want is you want to say, I'm confident that I've chosen from a ton of signers randomly and that no uh, miner or other party was able to bias the result. And the reason for that is it's a very early basis for a lot of attacks is if you can control the group, you have way more power over the situation. And once the groups are selected, how do you make sure everyone's behaving honestly in that group? Sure. Yeah. So you do a couple things. The core is that you are watching the Bitcoin chain. And that anyone who sees that group misbehave, so depositors primarily, but really anyone who wants to make some money can turn the proof in from the Bitcoin chain and then they get a piece of the misbehaving party's reward, uh, bond, excuse me. And so there's actually two ways to do this is one, you can prove that the Bitcoin moved, right? But the other is that, you know, this signing group, they collectively have control over a private key, right? And their job is to sign something that the smart contract tells them to sign. And so if they produce any other signature, anything that wasn't specifically requested by the smart contract, the chain can see that signature, verify it, and seize their bonds. So we have multiple mechanisms to prove that the signers have acted uh, maliciously. And is, is that an expensive process to do that? those proofs? Uh, it's actually really cheap. So uh, signature checking is less than 100,000 gas um, and uh, SPV checking is going to end up somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 400,000. And how does the key work token play into lining incentives here? For Remarkably signing? little. Okay. <laughs> so the keep token is, I mean, I guess it's worth like stating our, a bit of our philosophy here. Uh, you should do one thing well, right? And particular components, um, like I'm obviously, I think a lot of us in the space are big fans of Maker, for example, but this is a token that's pretty overloaded, does a lot of things. All that Keep does is it says you have some assets on the line to be selected for future work. That's it. So you participate in this random beacon, and then you can opt in to various MPC protocols. One of those MPC protocols is the threshold ECDSA protocol behind TBTC. So in, what I want to say that Keep doesn't do is it is not a governance token for TBTC. Um, it's not a buyer of last resort. It's really just 
folks that we have decided are strong operators and have shown a history of that and have uh, skin in the game. How have you distributed the Keep Token sure, broadly yeah. enough so that- Yeah, yeah. It? So, we're still working on breadth. But, um, you know, obviously, the, the mix of the regulatory regime in the U.S. as well as just it's, it's hard to make sure people are economically distributed has made it difficult. But a bunch of work on the team's front, partnering with different operators. We work with most of the major staking providers- uh, who have a little bit of skin in the game, as well as folks that we've known for a while. We're up to um, something like 80 separate operations that'll be uh, yeah. good to go on day one. And uh, back to you, James, on proving the deposit was uh, made properly on the host chain. This is kind of where your SPV work shines, right? Can you can you go into further detail uh, there? So once you've requested a deposit, right? You've said, I have Bitcoin, I want TBTC. We go out and get a signer group for you. That signer group makes a private key, which is in control of a specific Bitcoin address. So what the contract needs to do at that point is wait for you to fund. So you send funds to this address and then, you know, that has a, you make a Bitcoin transaction. The transaction comes from money you control and it goes to a specific known address. So the contract here needs to see that transaction, see that it's included in a Bitcoin block, see a chain of blocks on top of that with a lot of work so that it knows it's part of the Bitcoin main chain. And then it needs to go into the transaction and pull out the outputs and check that that specific signing group got paid. How many blocks do you necessarily need to process to know that it's been in the canonical Bitcoin chain? You're the go-to expert on this topic, right, James? <laughs> the go-to malcontent on this topic. Uh, so, I'm a malcontent on a lot of topics. Uh, this is kind of an adjustable security parameter of the system. When we're working on things that are just two-party contracts, like if I'm just trying to sell you some Bitcoin... You know, this is something that you can set based on your confidence. Uh, when we're working on a large multi-party system like TBTC, this is something that we have to parameterize extremely carefully and think, you know, deeply about the security model. So we have a little bit of additional work that goes into this besides just stateless SPV. You know, at Sumo, we've been developing new models for relays to inform processes like this. So we're looking at launching a light relay that is much cheaper to operate and maintain than BTC relay does. And to incorporate it into TBTC as a system so that we can have even more confidence than stateless SPV gets us. And then the security model becomes not just how much work has been put on top of this transaction, but also where does it fall in the relay's knowledge of the best chain? Uh, is this something that is included in the best chain the relay knows about, or is this something that is often some other floating chain that it doesn't know about? So it's actually uh, a really complex security model, and I'd love to discuss this like at length. <laughs> but uh, a podcast is, uh, I'm not going to be able to give you in-depth details because this is something we're still actively researching and writing about. But... But <laughs> there, there's like a there's a there's a simple product answer that the actual details are, are complicated. But the simple list, the way that I like to think about it is ultimately security is about how high is your wall 
How high is the water outside your wall? And then where's the first hole in your wall? You want the hole in your wall to be higher than the water or you're going to have a leak. And so in this case, even though the details, like what I, what I love is uh, when people say, oh, just wait six blocks and like you see James like having like a little stroke. Um, <laughs> but what's important about this is you can say, okay, if $100 million is coming into the system, raise the security so that the wall is that high. And, yep. Yep. Uh, and that's really the trick here is if there's a big inflow of capital, you require much more work. You know, working on a product like this, it really brings to the forefront issues with other coins that have the same proof of work but who don't have so much hash power. Well, that's an interesting thing about this is you cannot do TBCH. There is no way to do this securely. Yeah, it's, it's basically, it's like a, it's just an additional cherry mm -hmm. on top of a 51% attack yeah. on yeah, top yeah. of BCH. Yeah. So yep. we've discussed like really any direct Bitcoin variant that uses the same proof of yeah. work, we can't in good conscience build. Right? And so I think this is somewhat related to like, I mean, slightly tangential, but you've got lot sizes um, in the current specification. You know, you've got this this issue that you're talking about where you would necessarily might need to scale the security to meet inflows. How do lot sizes fit into that? My understanding is that at least in the white paper, it's at one BTC per lot. And it means if you want to deposit 100 Bitcoin, you're going to have to do 100 transactions. Is that a fair summary? If you have 100 Bitcoin that you want to put into this system, I'll help you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, that, is not, yeah. that is not a promise for services, it's just friendly advice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was really a difficult, um, a difficult discussion early on for us because there's this sort of like, we're democratizing finance, but mm -hmm. also $10,000 is maybe table stakes. So for V1, and we're trying to be really pragmatic in, in getting this initial version out, the plan is for around a one Bitcoin lot size. And the reason we've chosen that is that we can tune every security parameter around that transaction. And that lot size is strong with a whole bunch of different Bitcoin and ETH values that, you know, I mean, we're not projecting 10 years out or anything, but that we think are, are reasonable. That said, it's definitely high on my list to get, a, you know, a tenth of a Bitcoin and 10 Bitcoin lot sizes in. Mm -hmm. We just need to make sure that it works with a consistent homogenous system first. Right. And you know, there's a lot to be said for standardizing this while we're getting the system spun up. It makes so much of the development and reasoning about the system mm -hmm. easier, more straightforward, more clearly, you know, the right choice. It's worth noting that for a tenth of a Bitcoin, it's possible to do trustless deposit setup among many people. Um, it's going to take a lot of like custom DAP work, but it's perfectly possible to do with a standardized one Bitcoin lot size. That said, if you want a tenth of a TBTC, I would probably recommend buying it from the market. That is a very good point that obviously the ERC20 version as well mm -hmm. is infinitely divisible. So you yeah. can, yeah. 18 decimal places. Yes. 18, <laughs> which is way more than anyone needs. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, I actually, I can't wait till we open source because... James and I had this discussion um, <laughs> where I said, you know, James, you really, we need to always represent the Satoshi to weigh price as a ratio. Mm. And um, he said, I, I think it was something like, Matt, if ETH ever grows that much relative to Bitcoin, I will eat my hat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I will buy a hat because I don't own any hats. I will buy a hat to eat it. <laughs> If ETH grows to the point where a way is worth more than a Satoshi, it means that every Ether is worth 10 to the 10 Bitcoins. Yes, doesn't seem likely. <laughs> um, it seems very it's hard unlikely. to imagine, yeah. 
So it's very unlikely, and I will eat a hat. <laughs> right. And so, but you're obviously creating an inefficiency here with the lot sizes. Right. Um, granted, doing the proofs is not too expensive, but sure. are you worried about Ethereum with its current capacity? And whether no. you're going to break it? Well, you know, so you've, that's kind of like a two a two sided question, right? On the mm. one hand, if I said ten Bitcoin, you'd be like, "Well, I don't know if I'm comfortable," you know. <laughs> and uh, and with one, we're like, "Well, that's a lot of money, but also maybe Ethereum scalability." You know, so it's like it's really it's a very difficult number to choose. Mm. The other thing that you got to remember is you're asking those signers to have that cash on hand. To bond, right? So, like, I can't join a system and then promise you an infinite money to bond. That's just a uh, that's not responsible. And um, uh, another part of that is you're asking those signers to have that cash on hand available to bond, which means that if you have like a ten Bitcoin lot, your signer set is going to be constrained to people who have right. 15, fifteen Bitcoins Bitcoin of ether do. sitting yeah. around, and that's a much much smaller set than you know one point five Bitcoin of ether. Exactly. So yeah. it tur- it turns out that we actually can build trustless solutions for smaller and larger lot sizes but we got to get this we got to get this out first yeah. and i think market making for smaller sizes like i'm obsessed with the idea of getting a lightning to tbtc smaller kind of sub satoshi setup going i think that would be really cool and a good demonstration of the tech and then for folks who want to put in a lot more money there's some additional protections that we're working on to support that Let's talk about the recourse in the system really specifically around uh, these signing groups uh, that have to put up bonds. Uh, what are the couple scenarios where the bonds would be essentially slashed or liquidated? So we tend to sort these into what we call aborts and frauds. So the first one is where the signers were required to do something and failed to do it. Uh, this would be if they fail to make a redemption transaction to send Bitcoin when the deposit is redeemed. So that would be an abort. And there's like, a time period for there's that. There's a time yeah. period for that. Yeah. We try to be nice to aborts, right? Because like, it's not clear malice. Stuff happens. Maybe you, yeah. I mean, I really hope if you're custodying someone's money, you don't just let your computer shut off. <laughs> but, you know, we can we can make it human timescale. Right. And so for aborts, you know, the process is that we seize the bond, we use it to make the system whole and the redeemer whole, and then we return what's left over to the signers. Now, frauds, on the other hand, we're uh, a little stricter on. A fraud is when the signers take the BTC or when they sign some other message that they weren't supposed to. We don't know what they're doing, but we know they weren't supposed to do it, hmm. right? And so for frauds, we seize the signer bonds, we use them to make the system whole, and then the person trying to redeem TBTC whole if necessary. And then we take the rest and we don't give it back to them. We just take it. Yep. Yeah. And, and we is not. <laughs> we, we is not, not James. It actually goes to my personal wallet, you know, <laughs> no. ledger under my bed. It's founder's reward, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, effectively, effectively it's burned. I mean, and actually now that you mentioned founder's reward, there are a ton, you know, one of, oh. we're talking, sorry, I don't want to, I don't want to take this down a huge rabbit don't, hole. Don't derail this podcast, man. <laughs> I, I guess I just want to say earlier, we were talking about what was okay for Bitcoiners, right? Mm. And that's one of the principles here is that we aren't adding any sort of extra extra rents that aren't kind of required by the economic situation we put ourselves in. So there is no founder's reward. There's nothing that's getting kicked back to me or James back in the corner. Obviously, there are a lot of opportunities where I think smart people are going to get involved and, and make money, but not on depositors. 
How are you guys thinking about uh, sourcing the liquidity when these slashing conditions do happen, when TBTC or Ethereum needs to be converted to TBTC? Yeah. So I'm sort of a crusty Bitcoiner. <laughs> of course, my Bitcoin friends think you know, that I'm a trader and my Ethereum friends think that I'm old fashioned. But I think you know one of the things that I do love about Ethereum, all of its warts and all of the problems aside, is that you can have things like Uniswap. Right, And you can have on-chain liquidity pools where the contracts can just reach out and say, uh, I took this guy's money. Do I have enough to buy one whole TBTC back and, and burn it? So that's a really cool example of composability in Ethereum. And so that's number one. But the number two is, you know, again, another design principle. We are not going to rely on anyone else in this system. right? So maybe Uniswap has been hacked. Right. So everything that we build, if it touches an external contract, has to be extreme caution and has to work if the contract, like, you know, if you could just imagine there's a hard fork and all the hard fork did was destroy the Uniswap contract, we are resilient. To that. Which, uh, you know, I wish that hadn't happened before in Ethereum's history, but, <laughs> oh, you know, God. we have prior art here. Right. Yeah. Right. Our job on this podcast is to make Bitcoiners and Ethereum people like just cringe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like, yeah, I mean, so um, obviously everyone wants to be an immutable chain that doesn't always work out. So for us, in addition to going to Uniswap and on-chain liquidity first, and, and big props to that team, it's a great product. Uh, we then open up an auction and we say, okay, we've, we've seized these bonds. Here's, here's a falling price auction where anyone can turn in their TPTC and take their ETH or other uh, uh, collateral. So how does the system decide that it needs to do that and go to the the sort of backup auction mechanism. Yeah, so so first it checks to see if there's enough liquidity in Uniswap. So mm -hmm. we expect, you know, there might be slippage. This is just to clarify, this is buying TBTC on Uniswap buying with TBTC. ETH that was bonded. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. This is and so after we've punished the signers, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We need to make the system whole. So we need to go buy TBTC and we check Uniswap first. And for those of you interested in making KYC free frictionless money online. This is a great opportunity to be a liquidity provider on Uniswap, right? Because yeah. you know that all of TBTC is going to be plugged into the system. Yeah. But yeah, so the first thing the contract does is it just says, is there liquidity in Uniswap? And this is hard for the signers, but if there's low liquidity and there's going to be slippage, we still, as long as we can cover it, we do it. Because uh, the whole point is a supply peg and uh, sometimes people will lose money. And you know, to be clear, we only do this when there has been a signer abort or right. a signer fraud. Right. So they are already on the hook. They caused this problem somehow, whether by accident or on purpose. So we don't feel too bad about the slippage here. Yeah. And uh, another thing to note about this is uh, when we say Uniswap, like we're comfortable with how Uniswap works and we know it and we have an integration like ready to go. We're also looking at zero X space, you know, like contract liquidity solutions. We're looking at everything that's out there. And, you know, in the future, we'll probably be checking multiple different on-chain liquidity sources. Right. But you can't really use, could you use order books, like an order book model exchange for these liquidations? So there's no way for a, if you mean like Coinbase, there's no way for a smart contract to call Coinbase yet. I mean, not not necessarily a centralized player, but okay. there are DEXs that don't necessarily pool all the liquidity, right? Uh, mm -hmm, sure. Where you can actually yeah. enter orders at the, different price the, levels. The main advantage with Uniswap is certainty of execution, right? right, uh, right. With order book models, if there isn't a sufficient order book to take that even a yeah. market order is not going to do it. So uh, this actually gets into some really interesting conversation about Ethereum's calling semantics. Mm. But the long answer short is everything in Ethereum happens because somebody notified the contract of a situation, right? Mm. 
Ethereum can't actually like actively go out and read stuff that has to be informed. And so we're entering this abort process or this fraud process because somebody informed the contract that the signers did something. And uh, along with that, they could also provide an order book based liquidity source that they prefer. Uh, and so we could actually like provide an additional little ARB opportunity here. See, I take an even more laissez-faire approach to this, which is like, cool. Well, when we open auction, someone else can do that, mm. right? right. Um, well, um, this is saying as shortcutting the auction process and doing it in one that's transaction. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. So uh, there's all sorts of like solutions here that we can do. We can take advantage of order books. It's just an additional work of like integrating whatever their system is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us, I'm going to keep hammering home, building this with the Bitcoin ethos is like, listen to all these bells and whistles, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> features. Obviously, yeah. Obviously is like, as hackers, we love all these features, right? I mean, and I mean that in the creative sense and in the security analyst sense. But as engineers, it's terrible. Every one of these things you add is another chance for the system to fail. And so I think we're really moving as conservatively as possible, even involving Uniswap in this for me, took yeah. quite a bit of confidence. And kind of the the additional ARB opportunities are things that we're going to expose more as time goes on. Right. But I guess that the, the consideration is that the reason why you're adding these features or liquidity sources is to prevent a pretty serious failure mode of the system. Of right? course. So yeah. that would you know, We're, arguably be something worth doing. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all, all of these, like you introduce a new system, it makes TBTC more robust in one way and mm. less robust yes. in another. You yeah. know, something though, uh, that is a, a really great point, Louis, that another design principle that we've had here is even if that went totally sideways and there was a huge bug in that contract, the way that it is structured is that each deposit actually has funds scoped to it. Yes. And could we talk about that more? Because yeah, I think sure. it's in terms of like risk management of the yeah. system and how it's architected, maybe just quickly run over those kind of yeah. uh, concepts. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking about WBTC earlier, but I'll bring up um, another hidden competitor because I don't think they get talked about a ton. And that's Liquid. Yeah. Right. So if yep. you look at um, if you look at Liquid, they're building this uh, this, uh, you know, at the time they called it a side chain and we all sort of rolled our eyes though. Now we you know, we're like, OK. Maybe we'll call it a sidechain. But um, they've built this kind of inner exchange settlement platform, and uh, and it's ultimately based on 15 participants. And, and the skin they have in the game is reputation and legal. It's not on chain. And so a really important distinction about our architecture is that we're not building this entire economy on one wallet because it doesn't matter how well that wallet is protected. There will always be some uncertainty and, and chance that it can fail versus like, this is why we have a lot size. There is a wallet for every deposit. So, yeah, absolutely. So, on the one hand, like, I don't like bells and whistles. But on the other hand, when we can scope them to a fixed amount of funds and not the whole economy, it's a lot easier. And so, what? how does the auction process actually work? And how is that kind of different to other things that we've seen in sure. DeFi? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so, I guess I'll start with the point of this was not to build the coolest auction system. <laughs> the point of this was to kind of build like a, a fallback liquidity mechanism. But James, you want to share a little bit about... Sorry, I'm opening a GitHub issue real quick. <laughs> Talking about Uniswap failing reminded me that we need to go uh, transition to low-level calls so Correct. that we can get... Uh, Actual failure back. Yeah. See how much you learn on this podcast? Yeah, uh, your EVM is <laughs> really jamming. painful. That's what you're, you should be learning right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, the EVM is really painful. The specific issue right now is... Um, 
if you call a contract, typically you're going to go contract.function and then just pass the arguments. But if that contract reverts, it tanks the whole transaction, um, which means that if you are relying on a Uniswap call yep. and Uniswap reverts for whatever reason, we don't know what Uniswap does, then your transaction's dead and your contract might be bricked. And uh, so uh, reminding me that I need to go through and audit our <laughs> external calls and make sure that we are using safe calling semantics. The EVM is great. Uh, <laughs> I love okay. an expressive chain. So uh, <laughs> auctions. We were talking about auctions. Yeah. Right now, you know, if Uniswap does not provide the necessary liquidity, we have the smart contract just run a very simple Dutch auction. So it has this signer bond that it has seized, and it is selling that for one TBTC. And it'll start off by selling 70% of the bond for a TBTC and scale that up over time until it's selling the entire bond for one TBTC. And so the idea here is that the price gets more attractive and just like a nice linear slope until someone out there is willing to buy for the ARV opportunity. It's it's a really, really simple system. So it's a really simple auction mechanism, but there's a thing to, to know about it. And this is in the um, trying to keep it real in cryptocurrency category, which is, well, what if all of the bond is not enough to get one TBTC back, right? And you don't have a lot of choices if you're building a supply peg. Like you, you're not going to just like, you can't just clap your hands and make more Bitcoin exist. <laughs> so you, um, you can't just clap your hands and make Bitcoin less expensive. That's or... right. That's right. So a lot of this, you know, there's some like, okay, you open it up for our people to kind of like get in there and market participants. But, but in this case, you just leave the auction opened. So at some point that means that, you know, there is enough FX risk that it, like, let's say if Ethereum loses like, you know, a hundred X. In, in one block time and it doesn't recover in within any of the timeouts, this is very bad and a systemic risk for the system. So I think the other thing worth mentioning is Ethereum, this is going back to the bonds, Ethereum is not the only signer bond that we allow. Mm. Um, the most important signer bond in the system is actually TBTC. Yeah. So I want to finish up the thought here real quick is if all of that Ether that's in the bond is not enough, we leave the auction open. And one of two things is going to happen. Either Ethereum is basically dead, uh, <laughs> or at some point, you know, that's going to be enough again, and that TBTC will get closed out and the supply peg will be restored. Um, yep. So when we say, like, this is Bitcoin minus one, there is always a risk that any host chain that TBTC is built on dies, right? Yep. And, uh, and you want to get your money out. And so while I obviously I think Ethereum is a lot safer than Gox, and I think it's Ethereum, I'm sorry, guys, I think it's a lot safer than BlockFi. Yeah. Okay. But it's still a risk. You're still, uh, there's still a whole new set of miners and market participants that you're exposing yourself to in a way. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the conversations we've had internally quite a bit is, you know, the Ethereum Foundation is talking about how they migrate away from ETH1. We have this entire ETH2 plan that is built from the ground up as a new chain that is not compatible with ETH1. So... We don't know what the future of Ethereum is over the next two to three years. Um, and oh, you're so optimistic. Two to three years? <laughs> we don't know three what to five. the future of Ethereum <laughs> is over the next seven to eight <laughs> decades. So, you know, we have to kind of build this system anticipating mm -hmm. that the chain it is on, the chain it, that hosts it, will go away. 
Um, and so that's why you know each deposit is an independent thing that can be spun down by anyone at any time. Okay, so uh, going back to the most important signer bond is TBTC. One of the things that we realized going uh, about halfway through this process is, you know, the signer bond doesn't have to be any particular asset. And what we know about signers is that they have kind of a low liquidity preference. So they're okay bonding an asset for six months or more. As long as they can choose the asset. As long Everyone's as they can choose the asset. Yep. So why not let them bond TBTC? If the goal of that bond is to restore the supply peg by destroying TBTC, it actually works better if they bond TBTC and we can just destroy it directly. Yeah, so to, to just make that a little bit more clear, the way we've been describing the system so far, you have to put in 1x BTC for the TBTC market cap and then 1.5x the value in ETH. Yeah. Right. So it's a 2.5x total system collateral. So it's like that's a lot of capital to return on. And uh, anything we can do to lower that is is great. And the scheme that we're talking about in the modeling we've done is going to be like 1.4 to 1.6x total because signers can actually put down TBTC that they already own because they're comfortable going long Bitcoin to collect more signing fees. So this has a couple trade-offs, but the big idea is that it lets folks get more stuff into earning opportunities on the Ethereum side. Mm -hmm. And it actually seriously lowers the FX risk in the system. So like if you're used to thinking about like DAI, for example, you're going to be like uh, DAI backed DAI. You're making this much more dangerous and this will diverge, right? It's making a much less stable asset. But with the supply peg, uh, no, it's actually much stronger yeah. because you have less Ethereum in the system. Very interesting. So that, uh, I mean, that kind of explains the sourcing liquidity side, but what yeah. about knowing the price side? Obviously, you've got to source the price of Ether to know yes. when to liquidate people. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. are you well, doing that? We, we don't need to do that if they're bonding TBTC. That's right. But, yes. 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 So, so first, again, <laughs> that is why bonding TBTC yeah. is so important is to lower that need. But yes. So like m the most decentralized the system is, is it's sort of like most centralized component, right? You have to look at that. And so the two, the two risks for us are one, how does that price information get in there? And then the other is upgrades, which uh, I'm not going to go into because it's a long story, but it's incredibly like the Bitcoin way, not the DAO way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but anyway, so um, so on the price feed side, we've gone with something incredibly simple for V1. I would say it's it is dumber than uh, Maker's Medianizer, and the goal is to move. Uh, well, there there are a couple goals. So the goal is to to move to Medianizer, and potentially one of the design choices we could make is actually to. Uh, reuse makers new price feeds in MCD and multi-collateral die. So that's something that we've been discussing internally because then you have a large existing ecosystem that's powering this feed and that's probably going to do better than us at like sort of like bootstrapping a price yeah. feed mechanism, right? There, like that's not a core competency of ours. But we've also discussed stuff like UMA has worked on. So we've also looked at like various shelling point games and and, and market games. Very promising. It's a strong team. I like what they're doing. But um, I think there's just this like fear of parasitic interest in the system. Yeah. And so, so, so far, we're just going to go incredibly simple and authority-based price feed, and then we'll transition to uh, a federation-based price feed. From the um, brief modeling that you've already done, what are the projected uh, yield or sure. fees you can earn as signers yeah. in this network? So, um, so this is the kind of like 
core fixed parameter, and it, and it's sort of like the die rate right now, is what are your custodial fees, right, for signing. And so that answer is we're going to have to set them centrally. Until we have a robust market, they'll have to be set centrally. So we're starting with 50 basis points every six months for the term of a deposit. And then you're like, if you're a signer, if you've bonded TBTC, then great, you're making 50 basis points and you're making it in Bitcoin. That's the interesting thing here, right? Mm. Is it's Bitcoin denominated, not ETH or anything else denominated. And then if you're, if you're long ETH and you've instead bonded ETH, then you're making Bitcoin on that. But the other question, and this is another, this is another under the label of potential future work is, uh, all these people are bonding all this stuff and it's capital that's sitting around. All you need to be able to do is seize it. Right. So why not just shove it in compound <laughs> or in, uh, in like what, uh, MCDs, uh, daily savings rate yeah. coming up. Mm. So so those are some options that we've got as well, where folks can kind of get what we think is the risk-free rate that a tool like Compound can approximate, as well as, uh, you know, TBTC can still seize bonds when it needs to. You'd, would you have to go down one path or the other? You could effectively have... I, I think we're going to go an opt-in approach. Yeah. So like James kind of alluded to this earlier, right? So like clean code likes a uniform system. Mm. But a resilient ecosystem likes a heterogeneous system, right? So I don't want everything to be based on Compound or Mm. everything to be based on Maker. So the plan is to kind of let folks decide uh, as we go. And so in order to sort of work out what the recovery fee rate is going to be, you kind of have to understand what the operating costs are. Obviously, cost of capital is the biggest one, right? But there are some operating costs associated with sure. being a signer. Sure. Uh, maybe there are some hedging costs and other things in there, yep. depending on how you want to run the numbers. Do you have a feel for what those costs are today? Yeah. So I, um, so in our spec, I outlined kind of like you know what what are our custodians charging today? Uh, and now this is this is not this is not on the operating. It's not on the cost side. This is still on the pricing yeah. side. Just to get a feel for like, okay, people people think that uh, 50 to 75 basis points a year maybe can be paid for custodianship. All right. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where the market's at. As far as the actual operating for signers, really don't cheat and keep your computer online, uh, which sounds <laughs> super simple. Uh, in a black swan event, you know, obviously maybe that's not. You're talking about redundancies. In, that's right. Uh, so, so that's obviously cost um, money. Of um, course, of we, course. We can look at like the budding staking as a service mm-hmm. market yeah. for a quick analog yeah. here, right? Is uh, some of the staking at a service companies have dropped fees to essentially zero as a marketing thing. Like their costs are quite low. Mm-hmm. The primary risk is software or redundancy issues. The significant slashing that's gone on in the Cosmos hub in the last few months came as a result of poorly configured redundancy where two redundant copies were signing messages at the same time and they got slashed 5% of their stake. It might have even been less than 5% of their stake because you know two things signed different messages with the same key. Competing messages, right? Yeah, competing messages, same key. So indications are that the costs of operating something like this are quite low beyond the cost of capital. It's also worth noting on the cost of capital side that I think we as a space are all thirsty for places to actively <laughs> apply our money, right? Like, um, because, you know, there aren't that many places to uh, lend Bitcoin productively yeah. outside of like... It Bitmax. pays two basis points per annum to lend Ether on Compound. That's right. That kind of yeah. tells you something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 
So with the, you know, right now it's a fixed parameter, the fees. Sure. Is there a way that you can make that some kind of floating number? Absolutely. So um, the design that I'm most excited about, uh, I feel like the best ideas still come from Bitcoin's original design is to move to a one-sided market feedback approach. So basically utilization, uh, similar to difficulty adjustment. That's what I'm exploring. But, you know, really the focus right now is getting this out now because we know it works. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think a difficulty adjustment based approach is probably strongest. Speaking of getting this out, when's the anticipated launch date? Yeah, the, that's always the big question. Yeah. So, uh, so, Soon. so keep, keep proper, which is a, <laughs> which is a requirement. Actually, just gone into private testnet with staking as a service companies. Um, shout out to Figment and Bison Trails, and I think staked is about about ready to be done, and uh, that'll go to public testnet toward the end of this quarter, early next. Things have been going well, but also when a lot of people use your software, you find all the problems. And then the plan for TBTC is we should be, I'm scared to make this publicly. I want to launch before the end of the year. We have a functioning system, but now we need a functioning system that works under really adverse scenarios. So I think that's the race. Yeah. And there's kind of an initial go-to-market rollout, if you will, right? right? You have to get Bitcoiners to start using this thing. Um, How do you plan on initially bootstrapping the TBTC liquidity? (sighs) Yeah. So here's how we talk about it internally, right? So the first thing that we did is I was just like, well, I'm glad I've been in this space a while. Let's make some some calls, you know? And the latent potential right now in Bitcoin that's Mm -hmm. just sitting around is incredible. So there's just this uh, incredible uh, pressure. It's roughly speaking, all of the yeah, two hundred billion dollars, all <laughs> of the bitcoins. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're ta- you're talking about it's it's ten x the size of Ethereum right now, and it just it, they want returns. And I appreciate my friends who are shilling right now for BlockFi, but guys, that's a startup that could just disappear. Yeah, and it's you know, it's just like I mean, and I'm not. This is not to besmirch BlockFi. I'm sure they're great, and I'm sure they've got a great operation. But it's a very dangerous thing to do with your hard-earned coin to just like send it to someone else. So if you are going to send your Bitcoin to someone else, make it lots of people, and make sure that if they screw with you, you can get recourse. That's not a lawyer. Because you don't want to be that guy who flew to Japan uh, holding a sign outside Gox. That's not a good look. So anyway, that's that's kind of so. So I mean, I think every Bitcoiner that I've talked to about this, I've got a couple goals. First, don't freak out that I mentioned Ethereum. <laughs> Calm down. And then second, explain. Look, what I'm telling you is, instead of having one custodian, you can have ten, twenty, a hundred, and then loan that out. And I think that gets really interesting. I think when you look at um, when you look at, I'm like, what other projects? have Bitcoiners gotten excited about that aren't Bitcoin. And I see uh, Maker, there's been some begrudging respect, and Cosmos, because there's this understanding that Cosmos wants Bitcoin to be money and Cosmos is just the glue, right? And so, uh, we, we take a lot of cues from them when we're talking to early Bitcoin friends. And I mean, the other one is, and I'm going to get a little aspirational here, it's not really logistics of convincing people to give us their, not give us, but to put their Bitcoin in the system, is... um. There's an opportunity here to, you know, if you're a Bitcoiner, subordinate all of these chains, <laughs> right? So, like, one way, I mean, and, and the way that James and I look at it is pretty uh, open-minded. Like, look at all these, look at all this cool tech and it can work together and it's interoperable. And that's why we've launched the cross-chain group. But if you're, if you're uh, an angry Bitcoin maximalist, this is your opportunity to make Ethereum your sidechain. I think that's a pretty strong narrative as well. Get all of the benefits of Ethereum without ether at least without much ether and so on that note uh what do you think the long-term implications are for (laughs) network security or anything else if this were to become 
basically the primary mechanism or a very popular mechanism. For, yeah. 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 So, I mean, if you guys remember, you know, when Counterparty and Omni, I know James remembers. If you remember when Counterparty and Omni were uh, were first kind of a thing back in the day, we're all like, well, they don't really pay miners fees. Mm. And that's a problem. If you send a billion dollars on a tiny token on Bitcoin, you shouldn't wait one confirmation. Like that doesn't make sense. But the network doesn't know how important that token is to you. So you have a similar situation right now with Ethereum, where these in Huge economies can be built on top of Ethereum, but Ethereum's network security is not benefiting from that. You know, even though I, I joke about ETH 2.0 taking a long time, the, the economics, uh, that's the work that has to get fixed mm-hmm. so that this can actually accrue enough value to maintain security. So that said, in ETH 1.0, in the short term, this is great for Ethereum because you're bringing all of this liquidity to the space. You're pumping money into DeFi and into our favorite apps, you know. Longer term, if that token economics, if it's not fixed on Ethereum, this could be very, very bad for Ethereum. And I see the same thing for these other chains. So Ethereum is just chain one for us. Cosmos is high on our list. We've talked to plenty of other L1s who want to get in on this and work with the cross-chain group. So yeah, there's it's a long conversation, but it could really go either way. And uh, I think it will probably in your mind go wherever your ideology already is. <laughs> well, Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> so Let, uh, let's talk about Crosschain Group for a second. Sure. So congrats on launching. You guys are the uh, founding members, if you will, Suma plus uh, Keep Network. Are there other uh, industry participants that are eager to uh, join Crosschain Group? What's your vision around growing the actual group here? So... You know, this is a very young project. We came up with this a few months back while working on TVTC. And so since announcing publicly, what was it, last week, uh, we've seen an incredible amount of interest from base chains, from other practitioners, from other people working on cross-chain technology. We were really surprised by just how many people reached out to us directly, individually, and on the website, you know, asking about membership details. It's very gratifying. It feels like we've found a missing piece of the ecosystem here. All of these companies like us that are building on Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cosmos and Polkadot and Zcash and, you know, like 10 other chains really haven't had a place to like a home where we can work together, where we can make standards and where we can help the base chains figure out how mm-hmm. to be part of the larger ecosystem. We're seeing the same problems getting resolved over and over by each mm-hmm. of these budding ecosystems. And they're spending just gobs of money building things that already exist. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a great opportunity to coordinate a little bit and to have, uh, to ha- I mean, you know, like a lot of a lot of the events that we're talking about are very much whiteboarding and sort of like state-of-the-art presentations front and center. We want it to be as two-way as possible. But, you know, the other component that I think is missing is uh, we have a bit of a, um, and James, if you read James's work or watch his talks, we have a bit of a stance. And it's <laughs> it's uh, sort of this grassroots interop, right? Which is we have the tools we need right now for these chains to work together. Let's use them. It sounds good and it looks great in a pitch deck to build a giant new system that will, you know, have all of the chains. But it turns out that we have hundreds, I mean, God, I don't want to check coin market cap. I hope it's still hundreds of billions of dollars mm. that um, <laughs> I'm getting nods <laughs> that uh, that already can be unlocked and be used. And, you know, we've spent this whole podcast talking about TBTC. And the genesis of this idea is, yeah, Cosmos and Polkadot and these huge interoperability systems are being built and none of them will support Bitcoin. Mm. 
Cosmos is working on a Bitcoin supply peg, and we talk to that team regularly. But Ethereum and Bitcoin are the market leaders right now, and right. it will probably stay that way for several years. I think what we're going to see is that interop is going to become table stakes yeah. for all of these new chains. We're sort of waiting, like, you know, windship. When, when yeah. are these chains going to show up? <laughs> and, and in the meantime, the market has shifted where now, once we're launched, if you don't have a, a pegged Bitcoin in your system... What is your Bitcoin strategy? Right. Yeah. Like if you're a new layer one chain that is launching, how can you possibly compete with the several hundred billion dollar system that already exists, already has institutional adoption? And so uh, thinking back to the, the, the cross-chain group, right, is there a, it's probably more a question for you, James. What are the chains out there that are particularly easy to work with uh, based on their capabilities? Uh, and from an interoperability standpoint, are there any that are fundamentally very difficult to work with? This is actually a really interesting question because um, it's not obvious at first. Interoperability has a lot of really weird gotchas and considerations. Mm. And so surprisingly, Bitcoin is by far the easiest proof of work chain to interoperate with. And the reason for this is it uses a very common hash function for its proof of work that all other chains support and that the block time is quite long. And so having a long block time makes it cheaper to validate on other chains. And so if all you're looking to do is read events, Bitcoin is by far the easiest chain to read. If you look at the Bitcoin variants like Litecoin and Decred and Zcash, generally speaking, they went with uh, much more complex proof of work mm -hmm. functions that are not supported by other chains and can't be read without NARCs or Starks or some Ethereum hard fork, which, by the way, keep in the, we've been collaborating on as a cross-chain group project, is an EIP to support Zcash's proof of work. But uh, Ethereum is an extremely difficult target for reading. Uh, you have to have ETHash and Ketchak, and you have to be able to process 15-second blocks. So to, in order to get a decent amount of security, you're looking at hundreds of block headers. And then we get into proof of stake, which has a very similar relay model, but a lot of weird considerations. Now you have to process signed messages for each validator, which gets awfully and track the validator set and track the validator set. So your relay has to be updated regularly and it gets really, really chain specific very quickly because each of these chains have a different proof of stake mechanism with different ways of changing the validator set and different signature algorithms. And as it stands today, uh, I don't know of any proof of stake chain besides Cosmos Hub that was designed with this in mind. Mm -hmm. And Cosmos Hub is designed with this in mind solely in the context of IBC and other Cosmos chains. Having ETH2 validate Cosmos consensus is going to be awfully annoying. And I <laughs> would, I believe it will be impossible on ETH1 you just know, because of the signature schemes. So there's lots of consideration. With proof of work, Bitcoin is by far the easiest to implement and it's where we started. And it's also the you know, most in-demand chain. So it's a logical starting point. Uh, we expect to bring Zcash and other things online in the next year or so. If you're building a new chain, guys, you should talk to, talk to folks who work in these problems because you think of some of these fancy new, for example, snark-based chains yeah. where they just haven't thought about this. High Asuma, I believe, is the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> talk to the cross-chain group. We'll figure it out yeah. together. Yeah, for sure. If 
there's one thing that I can talk about with proof of work and interoperability. We saw a wave of memory hard proof of work functions <laughs> launching over the last five years. Litecoin being one of the first and one of the most notable. And uh, memory hardness turned out to be a trap. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. All of those chains got ASICed anyway. And now you're impossible to interoperate with. Yeah. So going for a memory hard proof of work function just got you trapped in this little hole and it's hard to get out of it. And the interesting thing is that we went this whole conversation without really feeling the need to explain why it adds value to put Bitcoin on Ethereum, right? right. Because it is obvious to 100% of our sure. audience, right? Um, in case it's not. <laughs> yep, sure, go ahead. Not. Look, yeah, can I yeah. do this? <laughs> yeah, do it, please. Uh, okay, so Maker is everyone's favorite DeFi system right now. Mm -hmm. And Maker is predicated on having leverage on good assets. Maker has been working for years on multi-collateral DAI, and multi-collateral DAI is better with Bitcoin. All of DeFi is better with Bitcoin. Bitcoin oh, that's and so soft in Ethereum first, James. <laughs> no, Bitcoin first. Guys, don't get no. doxxed. Don't, oh. don't, don't, <laughs> okay, don't yeah. let Matt, Bitcoin out to Matt, to I love shorts. you. How many people in the space remember Gox? Okay, okay, sorry. Never um, forget. Never forget. <laughs> Some of us were scarred permanently. But the, the space has kind of moved on from then. And we like DeFi. We think it's super interesting and cool that all of these things are being tried. And our main message for Ethereum here is DeFi is better with Bitcoin. The asset that is largest, you know, largest user base, largest adoption, most liquidity, deepest markets, most trading venues. DeFi is better with Bitcoin collateral. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to give Ethereum and other chains access to Bitcoin in you know, their native token standard so that they can use it and improve whatever dApp is built on them. And our message to Bitcoiners is <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin everywhere. And if, and if you believe that Bitcoin is going to win, this is the next logical step. Yeah. Awesome. On that note, let's conclude. Last sort of uh, housekeeping question. Where can people get in touch with Crosschain Group and, and staying, staying on top of the progress that you guys are making? Yeah, sure. So, um, so we're about to get, uh, we've gone from very quiet. We're about to get a little bit louder. But, um, in the meantime, if you want to reach out, uh, joining, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to do and, and, and we want help. Hit up crosschain.group, you know, fill out. There's a little thing where you can shoot your email. Uh, we'll be opening up a, uh, we'll be opening up a sort of like discussion group soon on uh, early mechanism design and then on folks who are integrating. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Crosschain Group, check out the show notes included in your podcast and remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.